through the hallways of academia and on the face of the moon the footprints of conquest haven't left us any room to say Greetings, and welcome to the 8th edition of Women's Liberation Radio News. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast. To break the sound barrier, women are blocked by, under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all American politics is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. I'm Katina Hyman, and today's edition is on motherhood. From the lesser heard radical feminist perspective, I am a proud black lesbian mother, and my wife and I have joyfully parented our 20-year-old son together. Today, we hear a selection of reports, music, and commentary to reflect the perspective most of the media is missing, plus interview segments from our talk with midwife and wolf member Mary Lou Singleton. But first, some headlines with Elizabeth McEwen. Donald Trump was elected 45th president of the United States last month by the Electoral College. Hillary Rodham Clinton won the popular vote by a count of nearly 2 million. Almost half of the country's eligible voters did not vote, and third-party candidates won less than 5% of the popular vote. Campaigns and petitions have begun going around to abolish the Electoral College and honor the vote of the people with the hopes of getting Clinton in office. Less than 24 hours after being elected, it was discovered that any references to being pro-life were missing from Trump's sites discussing his platform. While some claim the term pro-life was never a part of the material, other sources insist that some of this propaganda did discuss an anti-choice stance on abortion and were gone within 12 hours of the announcement of his victory. Donald Trump was previously known as being pro-choice prior to this campaign. Over the years, businessman Donald Trump has switched political affiliations frequently. His timeline is as follows. Democrat prior to 1987. Republican from 1987 to 1999. Reform from 1999 to 2001. Democrat 2001 to 2009. Republican from 2009 to 2011. Independent from 2011 to 2012. And Republican from 2012 to present. Artemis Singers, Chicago's lesbian feminist chorus, presents Wanting the Music, a choral musical of the Michigan Festival, playing in Chicago on January 28th and 29th at the Irish American Heritage Center in Chicago. The musical focuses on the highlights, celebrations, and development of lesbian relationships at Mishfest. Tickets are available online at www.artemiswantingthemusic.brownpapertickets.com. Early this November, William Daniel Johnson, chairman of the American Freedom Party, Trump supporter and longtime white supremacist activist, sent out a robocall to hundreds of thousands of Utah households. The call attacked an obscure independent presidential candidate, Evan McMullen. Here is a clip of the ad Johnson sent. Hello, my name is William Johnson. I'm a farmer and a white nationalist. I make this call against Evan McMullen and in support of Donald Trump. Evan McMullen is an Open Borders Amnesty supporter. Evan has two mommies. 
His mother is a lesbian married to another woman. Evan is okay with that. Indeed, Evan supports the Supreme Court ruling legalizing gay marriage. Evan is over 40 years old and is not married and doesn't even have a girlfriend. I believe Evan is a closet homosexual. Don't vote for Evan McMullen. Vote for Donald Trump. He will respect all women and be a president we can all be proud of. I paid for this ad for the American National Super PAC. Many children of lesbian mothers in our society have felt pressured to keep the fact private in order to avoid harassment and backlash. Water cannons shot in freezing conditions, along with tear gas, grenades, rubber bullets, and other aggressive attacks, made up the late November scene at Standing Rock while President Obama, in his last weeks in power, remains mostly silent and inactive. Protesters against the Dakota Access Oil Pipeline, a project that goes through sacred indigenous land and threatens the water and environment, are experiencing extraordinary abuses by government force, including one woman whose arm had been blown apart and may require amputation. The protesters, thought to number at least 4,000 during Thanksgiving, have been camped near the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota for several months now. The construction of the pipeline on Standing Rock Sioux territory poses a serious threat to the water and the land which it goes through. An earlier suggested route through Bismarck, North Dakota for the pipeline, which did not go through the same indigenous land, was rejected because of the negative impact it would have on those primarily white residents. As reported by ABC News, David Archambault II, who is chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, had this to say. This pipeline was rerouted towards our tribal nations when other citizens of North Dakota rightfully rejected it in the interest of protecting their communities and water. We seek the same consideration as those citizens. It's disappointing to see our state and federal officials advance their corporate pro-big oil energy platform here in North Dakota at the expense of human health, safety, and tribal sovereignty. A viral video going around in private messages and social media dated November 14th by Candida Rodriguez Kingbird details how she has witnessed tribal airspace being invaded late into the night by aircraft, some without lights on, flying over the protected indigenous land at Standing Rock and spraying what is assumed to be some kind of chemical agent. At the time of the recording, Kingbird says, this had been going on for days. She warns us to spread the message and adds, this is an act of genocide from the U.S. government. Lots of celebrities and politicians have been getting involved in protests at the camp, from Jill Stein to Susan Sarandon to Amy Goodman, Jane Fonda to Bernie Sanders. Earlier in November, President Obama suggested they may reroute the pipeline, but conditions at Standing Rock only seem to be escalating. This oil project was funded by Texas billionaire Kelsey Warren, who has said that he believes President-elect Trump will expedite the building of the pipeline because he owns stock in the building company, according to the Associated Press. In late November, Jill Stein was calling for a recount in select states following Trump's win, during which she claimed that Wisconsin's voting machines are illegal, although that is technically untrue. Each state decides which machines are legal, and the touchscreen method used by a minority in the state was approved by the Wisconsin Election Commission. It is also not the same touchscreen method that prompted bans in California due to the ease of tampering. Stein raised millions of dollars for the recount during this time. A shocking triple homicide in Oakland, California is being reported by media as having been committed by a woman. A lesbian couple and their adopted son were murdered and their house set on fire by male-to-trans person Dana Rivers, formerly known as David Warfield. Rivers made national news in 1999 for being fired from his teaching position when, according to witnesses, he shared personal information with his students about being sodomized as a youth and that he always felt like a woman as an explanation for why he'd be returning to school as a woman next fall. This was reported in a New York Times article at that time. 
After being fired, the media embraced Rivers as an LGBT hero, saying the reasons for his firing was for being transgender, and the ACLU helped him buy out his tenure. He began enjoying a new life as a transgender activist in the spotlight. Later, this took the form of protesting Mishfest for being a women-only space. No real motive is being explained regarding the brutal crime, and although LGBT sources were slow to report on the story at first, some such as Otto Straddle made sympathetic points regarding the murderer and took time to chastise observations of the killer's male status and questions on whether this was a potential hate crime against lesbians or people of color, which two out of the three victims were, as hate speech. Most mainstream media sources referred to Rivers, who is a white male, as woman or transgender woman. Victims write and read, leave behind two other children. Another crime, this time out of Montana, being falsely reported in the media as committed by a female. A local station in Billings and other sources report how a woman has been charged with raping a minor after having a sexual relationship with a 15-year-old girl under her parents' roof with their permission. The 28-year-old abuser in question is not a woman, but actually a male-to-trans person known as Aaliyah Rose Brown, formerly Albert Allen Brown, who was already charged with raping a minor at age 12 when he had sex with a 10-year-old girl. Brown is a registered sex offender. It isn't until you get into the body of the text of these news stories that the reader is led to understand that the accused is actually a male who is transgender. Brown has not been arrested. Meanwhile, violent and sexual crime rate statistics for women continue to rise in this country. Wolf's complaint in the case of the Women's Liberation Front versus the United States, a landmark case that argues for the rights of girls and women to bodily privacy, has been stayed pending a Supreme Court's consideration of Gloucester versus GG. Wolf's complaint argues that the administration's redefinition of sex to mean gender identity for Title IX purposes violates the Administrative Procedure Act and women's constitutional right to bodily privacy. The Supreme Court has also granted certiorari in the Gloucester v. GG case, where a girl who identifies as a trans boy is demanding access to the boys' restroom, and several boys have complained that her use of the boys' room violates their right to privacy. Wolf filed a friend-of-the-court brief in favor of granting cert in that case, and the Supreme Court has taken it up. Wolf plans to file an amicus brief in that case as well, arguing in favor of the rights of women and girls to have sex-segregated spaces. The Women's Liberation Front is the only organization involved in the ongoing legal battles regarding gender identity that is specifically standing up for the rights of women and girls. To donate to the legal fund for these historic landmark cases, visit womensliberationfront.nationbuilder.com. On October 30th, 2016, a lesbian mom received tremendous backlash after posting a Twitter photo of her smiling son dressed in a yellow blazer and white slacks as Hillary Rodham Clinton for Halloween. One user tweeted at her, quote, man-hating hashtag lesbians forcing their agenda on adopted kids, hashtag perverts, hashtag sick, hashtag pedophiles, leave the kids out of it. Many users tweeted that she should be jailed for child abuse and said, this is why I'm voting for Trump. Despite the hateful internet responses, she later gave a hopeful update regarding the real-life reactions to her son's costume. Nothing but love and high-fives from classmates and neighborhood and boatloads of candy in his trick-or-treat briefcase. Coming out this month from indie publisher Bedazzled Inc., Dispatches from Lesbian America is an anthology of lesbian writing for the 21st century. This collection of both fiction and memoir from over 40 different lesbian authors covers the full range of lesbian experience. Editors Giovanna Capone, Zakina Berber, and Rome Smith bring together lesbian voices from different generations, races, regions, and political histories to make a significant contribution to a new era of lesbian literature. 
The book will be available in both print and digital format on Amazon later this month. Recently, WLRN's Sekhmet Shiawal interviewed Dispatch's editors about the book, their publishing process, and the state of lesbian literature. There's a disappearance of lesbian spaces and a disappearance of our books and music and bookstores and gathering places. All of that is kind of on the wane right now. So we would love to see this book help spark uh, more creation of lesbian culture. And fortunately, there are quite a few more books coming out now uh, around these themes, which is really exciting. Not, not just our book, of course, but other ones, too. And um, that's really exciting. And so we're, we're just hoping to reach as many women as possible in this country and internationally. The full interview is coming soon to WLRN's website. For updates on the release of Dispatches from Lesbian America, follow WLRN's Facebook page. So speak out, speak over, speak under, speak through the noise. Speak loud so I can hear you. I want to know you. I want to hear your real voice. I want to hear your real voice. Your real WLRN's Thistle Pedersen interviewed Jai Kaladasi by phone to hear her thoughts on what it's been like to be a mother and a radical feminist in a patriarchal society. She has been a feminist since 1970, when she was 12 years old. She came of age through the era of second-wave feminism and the civil rights movement. Those influences, along with her participation in radical actions, worked to deeply inform her understanding of radical feminism. She is a mother, grandmother, gardener, thinker, writer, and traveler, whose feminism grows from her love of women, children, and earth. Hi. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how many kids you have, and what it's been like to be a radical feminist mother under patriarchy? Sure. I guess I should start by saying that I was raised in a household where my parents were politically active themselves. I would not call them radicals by any means, but they were active citizens. They participated in politics. They did participate in the civil rights movement. I grew up with the sense of what equality means and, and what it means to be a citizen fighting for our rights under a democratic state and the importance of dissent and protest and action of various kinds of action, and, and being informed. Anyway, so then I was, gosh, 12 when I committed my first feminist act, which was to help change the school dress code for girls. This was back in 1970, when girls were still required to wear dresses and all that. And although a group of us started this move, it was really pretty much me who ended it, <laughs> because we could not get agreement from the school administration. And I just started wearing pants. I always hated dresses. And I just said, I'm just going to wear them. And I did. And other people started too. And the school administration gave up. And, you know, that was kind of the beginning of various shifts. It took me a long time to realize how much that affected me as well as had an effect in the greater world. Even then, I was aware that I wasn't the only one doing it, you know, that it was happening around the nation, so I felt myself to be part of a greater movement. And of course, at 12, my 
ideas about feminism and equality were very young, very naive, and I've learned a heck of a lot, mostly the hard way since then. But I did go into motherhood willingly and as a feminist, uh, and with very distinct ideas about what that would mean. Uh, again, you know, in my early 20s, I was still young and naive and had no idea the struggle I would be <laughs> on so many fronts. But being a feminist mother to me has meant that my feminism would very much enter into my motherhood. That meant analyzing the role of motherhood as I accomplished it, as I did it, created it, reiterated it as someone raised with particular ideas about motherhood and figuring out how those weren't necessarily good for women or children. Um, I had very distinct ideas also about gender, and I wanted to raise my kids as gender-free as possible. To me, they were boys and girls. That's just biology, but I did not want them poisoned by patriarchal expectations of masculinity and femininity. So... You know, more than anything else, you know, I think that meant two things. One was just letting them free to be who they were and not judging it, you know, trying not to direct it, trying not to let other people direct it, and also talking with them about, you know, the, the things they met out in the greater culture. People telling them to do that or, or this is how boys act and just trying to debunk all of that with them, which took different forms you know, over the course of their lives and as they got older and able to understand more. Could you comment on what the difference is between feminist motherhood to you and patriarchal models of motherhood? Well, you know, the definition of femininity in general and motherhood is perhaps the epitome of the ritual of submission. You know, we are to surrender ourselves, our our brains, our bodies, sacrifice everything to raise the children, and not only to feed and clothe them and so forth, but to teach them patriarchy, to go along with gendered expectations, for instance, to force them to love school, quote-unquote, as if you could force that. So there were different fronts that I worked on and struggled on, and all along the way, you know, trying to continue thinking, analyzing, and, and not only seeing what the problems were, but what the solutions might be. And, you know, that's completely a work in progress. I have no idea what, if I've done anything I could call a success <laughs> as a feminist mother. I mean, patriarchy is not a place that really credits mothers with anything, no matter what we do. We're hated no matter what we do. That is probably the hardest lesson I had to learn over the years. There is no right way to do it because we're women. <laughs> yeah. Were you a single mother or were you partnered? Well, both, but for the most number of years, single. I had three partnerships with men in which children came about, but the total number of years that I had partners was only about 30% of the total number of years that I was raising children to the age of 18 and off on their own. So primarily I've been a single mom, and in some ways I preferred it. As a person, I preferred not having to deal with men with male entitlement, with, you know, dads wanting to have opinions about things they had never really thought about. And I'm sorry to say it, but that's so often the case with fathers. They, they, they want to have an opinion about how you raise the kids, medical care, education, discipline, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, have they ever read an article or a book or had a conversation about any of that? I mean, that was not my experience. And, and really, among all the many families I've known and worked with and so forth, it's more the exception that a man does bother really thinking about it, reading a book, 
entertaining, you know, critique of what he was raised with and, and ideas of how we can do this differently. Right. Yet when women are single moms, they have a whole other set of challenges that they have to deal with because we do live in a patriarchy and it's difficult. I mean, women are still earning, I think, like 25 cents less to the dollar that men earn out there. Yeah, it's like we're caught between a rock and a hard place when we decide to be mothers under patriarchy, whether we're single moms or partnered with a man. Absolutely. And I think that women, you know, in all situations, whether they have children or not, are faced with pretty severe obstacles. But, but yeah, mothers, I would say, probably have it the worst in some ways. Well, first of all, there's just so much work involved in, in raising children and caring for them and living with them. And none of that work is, you know, it's, it's invisible work. It's not valued. It's certainly not compensated. So a great deal of a single mother's time and energy and thought and love, you know, is goes into work that nobody sees, nobody credits, or at least very rarely. Not enough to make a material difference in a in a single mother's life or her children. So that's the thing. I mean, I probably would not look back on all of that with so much rage and pain if at least it had done my children any good, you know, that a few people along the way credited me with doing yeah. my job. Did you ever team up with your single mother sisters to meet some of these challenges and try to work together to do something to make the lives of single mothers better? Not in a political sense, but in a local sense, in my early years, yes. I I kind of have two groups of children. You know, my first three that were born very close together when I was in my 20s, and then a seven-year space between two marriages, and then the last three who came along more slowly, but with a seven-year gap. But in any event, it, during the period, you know, the first 10 or 12 years, uh, from the birth of my first to marrying my second husband and starting the second round. <laughs> I developed community actively with other families, and, and they weren't all single moms, but we single moms tended to band together, and we helped each other a lot. You know, we befriended and tended each other and our children a lot. We did a lot of child care exchanges. We hung out at, in groups together. Uh, because one of the worst things about motherhood and patriarchy is the isolation of mothers, whether they're married or not. Yeah. And, you know, that just leads to such alienation and, and huge stress. But, you know, to to get a break by someone else keeping your little ones while you go do something for a few hours, whether that's work or play or a nap. <laughs> um, and... And then otherwise, you know, hanging out together with the mothers and the children and keeping each other company and having some time for conversation in between herding the cats, as it were. <laughs> um, you know, there's just a lot of joy and love and affirmation in that, and, and I think it, it, it helped us all and our children because happier moms are better moms. We're more loving. Uh, we have more energy. Yeah. What is your advice to young mothers knowing what you know now? Men hate us. Don't ever forget it. Every system, every institution, motherhood included, childhood included, it's all built for men. It's all built against women. 
don't ever take it for granted that you ha will ever attain equal rights or that any man or any judge or teacher or anyone really wants to hear what you have to say or really cares as much for your children's needs as you do. These systems are set up to preserve and perpetuate patriarchy. And if we don't really get that, we're lost. We have so many struggles. And, and you know, it's a horrible thing to live with. It's not like it's easy. But to live in denial is much worse. I mean, I think of a few of the situations I was in legally. Well, being prosecuted as midwife was one. And I like to say about that, that when I decided to fight the state on a charge of practicing without a license that was brought against me, that I thought I understood the system sufficiently. And in the end, I realized that I'd been looking at the toe of the elephant and thinking that it was the whole elephant. By the end, I realized that I now could finally see the elephant. <laughs> and that's fine because I probably never would have done it if I'd seen the whole elephant, you know, to begin with. I would have tried somehow to get the hell out of from under that battle. But I did, I did enter the struggle, and I, and I won a significant victory. But also the legal things I have been in, well, the first one being with my first ex, that you know, originally he was happy for me to have full custody and for him to have whatever visitation he wanted, and he, you know, pretty much kept up his end of things, although he never paid child support, but he did help with the kids on a regular basis. Anyway, once he remarried after a few years, he took me to court for, for to get custody from me. He had a mother replacement for me, in his opinion. <laughs> and, you know, I managed to defeat him as well, but not through direct battle in courts. But it was through that, at both of those experiences, that I realized how much we're hated, how little regard the system has for women or for children. It doesn't care what we need. It doesn't care what is really good for our well-being. It cares about forcing us to do what they want us to do for the well-being of the men and the institutions more generally. I mean, I just cannot stress how important it is for women to understand this. You may think you're married to a unicorn, and maybe you are, but even if he is, he still lives in a world that prioritizes men and sees women and children as possessions. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our WLRN listeners who are largely radical feminists and lesbian feminists? How can women who are feminists, whether they're mothers or not, help out in feminist mothering? Well, you know, I think radical feminism on the whole could start by just absolutely refusing to judge women who decide to become mothers. And with that, refuse to entertain the thought that, you know, no woman would ever have a baby if she was really a feminist and, and, and if she had a real choice and so forth. I mean, it's so complicated. Of course, there are social factors. Of course, you know, that that push us towards motherhood, but to deny that that there's a real biological thing and that it's something women can do and some of us really want to do. Nobody forced me to have babies. No one could have. I mean, I had abortions as well as children. I had the children I wanted when I wanted them. And I enjoyed motherhood. But it doesn't matter. I mean, what matters is there's this division and it becomes very difficult. I mean, some radical feminist groups end up you know, being reserved solely for mothers because in the greater community we often face this kind of scorn 
and even hatred for having done that. Like, oh, you know, you went and you collaborated with the men's world. And, you know, there's that. You know, love us. Love all women. It doesn't mean you can't hate a few individually. <laughs> but if your radical feminism isn't about loving women and the things that we are capable of as women, then then there will never be unity and we will never have gathering of the kind of power politically that we need. And face it, way more women in the world are mothers than not.
Mary Lou Singleton is a member of Women's Liberation Front, a midwife, and was a co-author of the open letter to Mana, which addressed woman-erasing language in official midwifery literature. She was a contributing writer in the newly released book Female Erasure as well. Elizabeth McEwen had the opportunity to converse with her about radical feminism and the concepts of healthful childbirth and motherhood. We will hear from Mary Lou in the following segments from that conversation. I really wish there were more critique of the medical industrial complex among radical feminists. I think that there's so much personal trauma held in the bodies of the majority of women in our culture. And I think that that trauma prevents a lot of women from exploring our relationship with industrial medicine and authoritarian male medicine. And that's difficult to address. You know, I think that when we start really critiquing the medical model, women who've had incredibly traumatic experiences or who are dependent on on industrial medicine get very defensive and view it as a personal critique. And it's very similar to what we see with our conversations with liberal feminism, where if you start critiquing high heels and makeup or the poor institution industry, women engaging with those parts of patriarchy view it as a personal attack. So I'd like us to be able to view industrial medicine in the same way we view the rest of patriarchy and step back from the personal and really examine the the political structure in place. And it, you know, it doesn't start with birth. I think what, you know, what you're saying about birth is so true, but it's our engagement with that system starts so much earlier. You know, it starts in childhood, but then in terms of women's health, the vast majority of women, their their very first period gets pathologized, and then their adolescent relationship with their menstrual cycle gets pathologized. We're at a point where very few young women escape getting put on hormonal birth control during adolescence, and that creates this setup where you view your body as pathological and, and industrial medicine as a savior from your body. So by the time you get to birth, that mindset is is already there. That um, colonization of, of ourselves is, is deep already. And then when we get to birth, you know, most women start off their, their birth care within that industrial model. And by the time they get to their delivery, you know, honestly, their stories of I almost died, that's that's often true at that point because of the way they've been mismanaged from the pregnancy test on and how to have this discussion as as a radical community. Like, why are 90 percent of us unable to give birth normally? I think it's much higher than that. When you say at this point, Elizabeth, it's closer to closer to 100 percent of women birthing in the hospital system are having a pathological birth. What's happening to women in birth is is horrific and i believe our birth practices are designed by patriarchy to destroy female fierceness to destroy that awakening that you and i know happens in an undisturbed birth that power that rises up like you're a different creature on the other side of that right i think of that like i have been present at so many amazing incredible undisturbed births i've i've birthed my own children in that way. And, and I know that in my body that I'm different after each of those experiences that it woke up this fierceness in me. It woke up this understanding that there's nothing I can't do. I want to live in a world where the vast majority of the mothers are awakened in that way. 
I think that liberals are really good at normalizing the crisis of capitalizing on the crisis of the war on women that we create this sort of like, oh, the solution to abortion rights disappearing is everyone donate to abortion funds so poor women can travel 500 miles to get an abortion. That's not a solution. That is a response to, to a crisis that we should be fighting. That's a response to an attack on us that doesn't actually reverse the attack. I feel the same way about this pushing of everyone to get IUDs. I think that is just feeding that system of that system where where many liberals believe in order to be responsible, women have to take these medications. They have to they have to be on some kind of hormonal birth control. Um, I don't think that's the proper way to fight. I would rather see us educating women about their bodies. I'd rather honestly start addressing the culture of male sexual entitlement that pushes women into thinking they have to be having ejaculatory sex with men on a regular basis when many of them aren't even really interested in that. So um, three years ago, there was um, an assault on my town. I live in Albuquerque where we have one of the last clinics that does late-term abortions. We have these very brave doctors, Shelley Sella and Susan Robinson, who are both feminists. Um, Shelley Sella used to be a home birth midwife, is married to a midwife. These are very, very brave women, and they do late-term abortions, mostly for women who discover late in pregnancy that, that there is a lethal anomaly with the pregnancy or something wrong with the pregnancy where the mother will get very, very sick. So women travel from all over the country to this clinic for this service. And we had Operation Rescue invade our town and a lot of other right-wing forces to try to push a 20-week abortion ban that would have criminalized ending any pregnancy after 20 weeks without um, putting effort into saving the fetus, the same effort to save the fetus as to save the mother. So what that would mean for women is, you know, if, if you were carrying an anencephalic baby, it'd be illegal for your provider, even in the hospital system, to induce labor before term. So that forcing women to carry pregnancies that are not compatible with extra uterine life for, you know, another four months after that. It, it was a very misogynist push um, and it's happening all over the country. So I was working with a group of friends who are, are all feminists to try to fight back against this and to keep this initiative from happening. And we were organizing on our own and a lot of what we were doing we got this incredible pushback from local Planned Parenthood and from our local funded pro-choice organizations. They called themselves the um, the Coalition for Reproductive Rights, I believe. They call, um, Trust Albuquerque Women was their name during this push. And Planned Parenthood sent what we started realizing were spies to all of our meetings to try to police our language, to tell us how we could talk about abortion. The Planned Parenthood representative would tell us, um, don't use the word abortion. You know, you say difficult choice. Um, don't even mention abortion when you're trying to fight this abortion ban. And up until this point, I had always thought I was on the same side as Planned Parenthood. Um, so then we organized a rally on our own because we didn't feel that the local coalition was fighting a winning fight. We wanted to take this into our own hands as women of Albuquerque. And that's where um, I met the women of Stop Patriarchy, the people, the activists of Stop Patriarchy. And seeing Planned Parenthood's reaction to Stop Patriarchy, where we were told, you, you can't engage with them, they're too radical, they'll make us lose. 
I just started seeing this other dynamic. And being involved with Stop Patriarchy, I met Carol Downer and I met Merle Hoffman. I met these women who'd been involved in the fight for abortion rights since before Roe versus Wade. And, and I also met independent abortion clinic owners and heard story after story of how Planned Parenthood has worked for decades to stop the feminist women's health movement from having our own locally controlled feminist women's health centers where we have women's health in women's hands. And I believe Planned Parenthood is not a feminist institution. I, I think that they're, they're a patriarchal authoritarian institution that happens to provide abortions and birth control. They're riding the cash cow of, of medical transgenderism right now, too. And most, many Planned Parenthood clinics are now gender transition clinics. They're, they're training their providers in this incredibly lucrative medicalization of gender that's happening where young people are being, and people of, of all generations are being sold this idea that you can opt out of being a member of the oppressed sex class and go get testosterone and change your you know, they're selling the idea you can change your sex, which you and I know you can't do, but you can change, you know, your gender presentation. So they, they're making money off gender and they are also erasing women from the language of female reproduction. Um, it's, it's horrifying to watch them start referring to women as menstruators, people with uteruses, uterist people. That is how they are now referring to women. And there's that book... Killing the Black Body. Do you remember who wrote that, Dorothy? That's a great book that has very good radical history of, of um, how the Kellogg Foundation and other ruling class people at the, you know, found foundations and forces at the time that had a population control agenda co-opted Margaret Sanger's work and turned this into a ruling class population control organization. I think that's something we have to really work so hard to educate everyone we know on right now is that there's there's liberal patriarchy and there's conservative patriarchy and Planned Parenthood is a liberal patriarchal organization. And I, I think, you know, I agree with Sansara Taylor, the founder of Stop Patriarchy, that between the Pope and the pimp, there is no fundamental difference. And right now our, our options are being set up that you can either align with the Pope lobby or the pimp lobby, right? And I think Planned Parenthood is very invested in making women sexually accessible to men. The Midwives Alliance of North America, which started as the grassroots organization for um, the home birth, the, you know, the liberated birth movement, it started off as the grassroots organization to represent midwifery as a social movement, not as a profession, and now has become professionalized. Um, the Midwives Alliance of North America two years ago changed its language in its core competency document to erase the word woman and replace it with pregnant individual and, and birthing parent in order to satisfy, they said in order to be inclusive of people of all gender identities. So essentially, they erased biological sex as the lens through which we view human reproduction and told their membership that gender identity is the lens through which we should view who is giving birth and took out the words woman and mother from the core competency document on how to be a, a competent midwife, which I found really horrifying and, and unacceptable 
so with a group of other midwives and my friend Michelle Pacino Smith and several other midwives collaborated with us, we created a response to this, an open letter to the Midwives Alliance of North America explaining our concerns about this erasure of women, of this embracing of um, what we feel is big medicine technological interventions. You know, there was no critique of what's being done to people by the gender industrial complex, no addressing of how women who've been on testosterone for years might have riskier pregnancies and births. And, and is that even within the scope of practice of, of home birth midwifery? Is that still normal birth? Um, and we, we published this open letter and called for signers and we got many, you know, hundreds of signers, many of whom were prominent midwifery activists. Um, the, Susan Hodges, who's the founder of Citizens for Midwifery, um, Goji Cook, a, a powerful indigenous midwife, mm -hmm. um, uh, Ina Mae Gaskin, who wrote Spiritual Midwifery, who many people believe is, is one of the mothers of the modern home birth movement in the United States, signed our letter in support. Um, MANA has never responded to our concerns. They have never given us a, an official response. Their response was to ignore us and to really promote gender ideology even harder. At this point, I believe we also have to call for a deprofessionalization of midwifery, that women, is, women own birth and that this is not a profession. And that's a place where there's going to be some contention. And I'm not saying women shouldn't be paid for the work they do, but I think women should view birth as something that belongs to us and to our sisters. This is one of the reasons I no longer carry a midwifery license is I no longer believe that professionalization is the answer. I actually think that's a way of handing midwifery back to the patriarchy. It's, it's heartbreaking. I really counted on the radical birth community to not go insane. I, I counted on them to maintain an understanding that only female members of a sexually dimorphic species give birth. And this is crazy. And, and this, this particular disconnection from biology is so disturbing to watch. It's really upsetting on so many levels to watch people buy into this, which it feels like a new, a new religion or a new form of patriarchy, you know, a new ideological twist of patriarchy and watching it take root in our culture is so disturbing. And just seeing, you know, when, when people promote genderism, it's very disheartening to see all of these people that, that you thought you had common ground with, that you really thought you were working toward women's liberation with, watching them embrace this belief in sexism, really, isn't it? You know, this belief that, that we do, that there are these innate male and female soul essences and that male and female really is nothing but this set of sexual stereotypes and which one you identify with is, is which one you are. And, and also this hatred of the body that comes with it and this complete disconnection from life as we're at this critical place as a culture where, you know, the whole systems of, of biology are unraveling all around us, we absolutely need to be going in the other direction. Let's look at what industrial birth looks like in this country. Let's look at what over 90% of women are getting for their birth. They discover, you know, they, they figure out they're pregnant and they go in, they present themselves for prenatal care. They essentially hand themselves over to the authorities, right? And now it's standard of care to tell them you have to have a dating ultrasound. 
because, and I've even heard nurse midwives say this, because women don't know when they conceived. So from the very beginning, you're told the authorities know more about your body than you do. Even if you present your calendars and you've been tracking and taking your temperature, they tell you evidence-based medicine says women don't know when they conceived. So you have to have a dating ultrasound. And then this is followed by a series of ultrasounds where the pregnancy is not real until we can see it on TV. You know, we we can we we have to be able to see your baby on the computer screen and then it's real. And then the entire prenatal care process is a series of looking for pathology and um, continually reinforcing the message that if we don't keep track of you constantly. If you aren't constantly monitored by authorities, you're going to kill your baby, right? That's the messaging. So by the time a woman gets to term, if she even goes into labor on her own, and at this point, what, like, you know, a huge percentage of women are induced that most women don't even go into natural labor anymore. But if she does go into to labor, she then presents herself to the authorities again. She goes into the hospital where she's immediately restrained and we pretend we don't restrain women in labor anymore. We, we talk about the 50s like that was so barbaric that they handcuffed women to the bed. But we had these little pink and blue belts that essentially serve the exact same functions as those leather wrist restraints did. And you were tethered to that bed, you're hooked up to computers and machines, and you're under constant surveillance, and they call it fetal surveillance during your birth process you can't move, you're, you're absolutely restrained to the bed. If the belts weren't enough, you also have an IV, so you're, you're triply tethered, right? You've got the contraction monitor, the fetal heart rate monitor, and an IV, and then sometimes they put a fetal scalp, like you've got things coming in your vagina. They come in and do multiple vaginal exams that are not optional, so essentially you're being digitally raped the entire time as well. And no wonder no one can get her baby out. If you treated any other mammal that way, she would rip your face off. <laughs> this is this is how we're treating women in labor. No wonder no one has a normal birth experience. How can anyone let go and go animal and let that life force move through her under those circumstances? And usually when women have that story of being done to by midwives, it is because the midwives are placed in this adversarial relationship by the state with their clients, with the women. And also the midwives are viewing themselves as authority figures, not sisters helping sisters at a birth. When I was practicing, I had a very, very busy home birth practice. And I'm, I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to do that. I really viewed my goal as if this woman thinks I delivered the baby or I got the baby out, I didn't do my job right. My goal is that she knows she did it herself and almost is like a training ground for her to know she could have her next one unassisted. I do feel kind of despondent about the state of, of the natural birth movement and um, wondering how to get it back into women's hands and how to... You know, once something's been co-opted by liberalism, it's it's so much more difficult to wrest it back than than if it's just pure authoritarianism, right? And getting back to really having debates with each other and really coming together and and disagreeing and and sussing things out. We're not we believe that we're not allowed to disagree anymore, and that prevents us from even having these conversations. I don't trust any system that's telling us not to trust our mothers.
Those were wolf howls heard under the November supermoon. And now, Everyday Goddess by Celia Ferran. I know, but Everyday Goddess. concludes WLRN's 8th edition podcast on motherhood from a radical feminist perspective, produced by Jenna DeQuatro this December 1st, 2016. I am Sekhmet Sheowl. And I'm Elizabeth McEwen. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to tune in again for the first edition of the new year on January 5th, 2017, when our topic will be on the conflict at Standing Rock. WLRN is volunteer-powered radio. It is only by the hard work of our team members that we are able to produce quality programming each month. Please take a look at our website and the new tab called Help WLRN Get Station Shirts to donate and have your name entered to win a light gray cotton v-neck shirt with one of our designed logos by Celine Michaels. 
We will order the shirts once we have enough funds to do so and randomly select two winners from all those who donate $20 or more. The rest of the shirts will be distributed to WLRN members and used for giveaways or rewards for future fundraising efforts. Thanks for supporting Women's Independent Media. We also welcome any feedback or questions. Feel free to write us at WLRNewsContact at gmail.com. This is Sarah Barfraz signing off for now. The team here at WLRN is dedicated to bringing you quality monthly podcasts on topics other media sources won't touch from the perspective you're not supposed to hear. Thanks to your donations, we've been able to make these programs one hour long and will continue to do so. Women's Liberation Radio News relies on your grassroots efforts in sharing radical female voices, so please share this widely. On behalf of myself and my sisters here at WLRN, I'd like to wish you a warm holiday season and a prosperous new year full of awakening and revolution. But how will we find our way out of this? What is the antidote for the patriarchal kiss? How will we find what needs to be shown? And then after that...